All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument with Nick Freitas. We have a great episode planned for you today because if you're someone who's concerned about your retirement fund, your 401ks, index funds, this episode is for you. If you're a retail trader like Christian and I who invest in individual companies, this episode is for you because today we are going to examine a claim that's been given by the left for the past 12 months that we have just gone through the largest transfer of wealth in our country's history. We're also going to going to examine a nefarious relationship that Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and Washington, D.C. have that is affecting how our retirement funds are actually doing that we need to be aware of. So I'm going to hand it over to Lydia now to start us off and thank you for joining us. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to talk about this because I am just the average person without the grasp that these cool guys have on this particular topic. So I'm excited to learn. I'm here to ask the normal person questions and really just go along for the ride. Hopefully you guys are excited to join me. Let's get into it, Hamilton. So Christian, let me ask you this question. Have we actually gone through the largest transfer of wealth in our country's history? And if so, why do we need to have this conversation right now? Um, so that first point is really up for debate. I mean, you can go back throughout history and, and potentially make an argument that there were other points in time where there was a larger transfer of wealth, but for the purposes of like modern day discussions, you know, like the last thousand years or so, um, you could certainly make the case that what we've gone through the last three years is, is at least ranked up there. Sure. Um, I'm not willing to necessarily go out on a limb and make the argument that it is the largest transfer of wealth in history. But I mean, when you look at the amount of money that was printed, the amount of money that was spent, um, I mean, really since March 2020, it is certainly going to be ranked very high up on that on that scale. Wow. So when we talk about the largest transfer of wealth, I, I would assume that most of the wealth that people like Elizabeth Warren are talking about is rising to the top. Is that true? So this is actually where I would agree with somebody like Warren that, that, I mean, you can look at the, again, the last three years and see that, that a tremendous amount of money has gone to those at the top. But again, it's important to understand this is the, the, the most nefarious lies are usually the ones that have a little bit of truth ingrained in them. Right. And so if you're somebody like Elizabeth Warren and you can claim, you know, millionaires and billionaires have just gotten rich off of the last three years, you can absolutely back that claim up with data. But then she goes a step further and says, and this is why we need more government intervention. This is why we right. need more taxes. This is why we need more regulation. This is why we need more state control over the levers of the economy. And that's what makes it nefarious. Why is that? Well, because it's the state control is what enabled this transfer of wealth to take place in the first place. Okay. It was the state that passed all these COVID bailout bills starting in March 2020. 
it, and, and it wasn't just people on the left that said the phrase largest transfer of wealth. Thomas Massey went out there and said the first COVID bill was a massive transfer of wealth and that it would become patently obvious in short order. And he was ridiculed by people on the left for saying that. They said he wanted people to die. They said he was cruel and heartless because he voted against the first COVID bill. And I really think the last three years have vindicated Massey on this sure. front, not not his left wing opponents. And so the the irony of all of this is that somebody like Elizabeth Warren can point to the actions of Silicon Valley or Wall Street from the past three years and say, see, I was right. You know, there's just been this massive transfer of wealth towards, you know, those that already were relatively better off than the rest of the general public. And so therefore, everything else that I believe is true. You have to draw the line where she says, and everything else I believe is true. And and, and we're going to really get into this in this episode. There's some really neat stories to talk about, and there's mm -hmm. some really crazy, crazy stuff that's going on behind the scenes that, quite frankly, the general public is just not aware of. But it's actually easy to find this information. Yeah. Um, and it, it really goes to the point of explaining how how Elizabeth Warren could be right in one sense, but completely wrong when it comes to the conclusions that she draws. In just a few minutes, we are going to get into how this transfer of wealth took place. Mm -hmm. But let's, uh, let's lay the playing field, Christian. What have people been saying about this? So a lot of people have been seeing this in the headlines. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. Over the past year, because inflation has gone to levels that we haven't seen since the 1980s, the Federal Reserve's response has been raising interest rates. We've talked about this on this podcast many times before. But what's so fascinating is that at the same time that the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates, you've seen politicians like Elizabeth Warren come out and just radically, like vehemently oppose this process. Um, there's an article from Newsweek, her talking about the Fed's extreme interest rate hikes as anger grows. We've got another article from Politico where she actually um, sits down and, and gives an interview and she says, I'm most focused on what the Fed does next. It might be possible to pull off a soft landing, notwithstanding the extreme rate increases the Fed has imposed on our economy. And that's only true if the Fed slows down dramatically on the approach it's taken over the past few months. What she means by that is the Fed needs to stop raising interest rates. When she says the Fed needs to slow down the process it's taken over the past few months, that process has been raising interest rates one meeting after another. And then if you get to the next point, you see the same thing where she says, this is back in August um, from Forbes. Elizabeth Warren is very worried the Fed's interest rate hikes could spark a recession. So you have somebody like Warren that has been made it publicly very, very clear that she is against what the Federal Reserve is doing when it comes to raising interest rates. But the irony of this is that she's implicitly advocating for a return to a monetary policy that enabled many of these companies in Silicon Valley or in Wall Street to do the very things that she is complaining about. Hmm. So we actually have two articles that I just want to read the headlines where it says Uber and Lyft have a powerful new enemy in Washington, and that enemy is Elizabeth Warren. It's a picture of her on screen. This is from Fortune. And then we have another one. Um, this is from 2021, actually about um, the, the whole GameStop short squeeze. And she says, Elizabeth Warren says the GameStop stock surge so, uh, shows the need for clear rules. And here's a quote from her. I want to see more traders in the market, but I don't want to see them be able to get in the market so that way they can be fleeced by insiders. That's an important point. That quote is the foundation of everything we are going to be talking about today. Because the fleecing by insiders that has been going on really for three years was only made possible to the degree that it has been taking place because of the Federal Reserve's loose monetary policy, a loose right. monetary policy that the Federal Reserve has now started to abandon 
through them raising interest rates. But whoa, whoa and behold, Elizabeth Warren is going out there saying the Fed should stop raising interest rates. So which one is it? She's advocating implicitly for a return to the same type of policies that allowed insiders to fleece okay. regular retail traders. And we're going to get into exactly what I mean by that in this episode here. All right, Christian. So we know that there's a nefarious relationship going on here between Washington, D.C., Wall Street, and Silicon Valley. And we know that this relationship has enabled these already billionaires to get it even richer. Now, how has that been possible and how does that affect our own investments in the stock market? That's a great question. So there's a tweet and then a little bit of a story that I might want to get to. Um Here's a tweet from Michael Burry. You might have heard of him. He um, made so much money off of the 2008 crash, accurately predicting it ahead of time. That uh, basically, they, they not even basically, they, they literally made a movie off of him called The Big Short. Um, it's actually a great movie, by the so way. So I should you watch should, it? Yeah, go ahead. If you haven't seen it yet, I, I highly recommend it, especially okay. if you're interested in economics yeah. to any degree. Um, I'm on this podcast. I must be. <laughs> I hope so. But um, so, so Burry has really made a name for himself for for being kind of like this, you know, predictor of doom and gloom. That's also why his uh, tagline on Twitter is Cassandra. Um, it's it's in reference to a movie character who, like, nobody believes until it's too late. Um, and um, Burry tweeted this a few months ago, around the same time that Elizabeth Warren was really starting to publicly come out and condemn the Fed's actions of raising interest rates. He tweets, This morning... There were still 218 primary stock listings in the United States with a market cap over $1 billion and an EBITDA less than negative $100 million. Okay, 20, for, And I, I will get sure, into explaining sure. exactly what those mean. Um, and then he concludes with 29 of them had a market cap over $10 billion, totaling $655 billion. Saying it again, all the silliness must go. Now, I'm sure that there's some phrases in here that the general public might not know. This is like super wonky Wall Street speak here. So when he says market cap, a market cap is is the on-paper value for a company. How much money is invested in a company? In that company. So, for example, if you had a market cap of a trillion dollars, which is a lot. There's very few companies that have a market cap of over a trillion. Apple's like one of the only ones. Um, if you have a market cap of over a trillion dollars, what that means is that if you took all of the shares of the company that exist and you put them all together and you look at the value of all of them based on what the ticker pr you know, price is for yep. that share and you put them all together, that's the on paper value for the entire company. The amount, the amount of shares in circulation times the price of the, the share stock. price. Yes. And so when he says market cap, that's what he means. So, so a market cap is the theoretical value of the company based on what the market the, the stock market is saying that it's worth. Okay. So when he says market cap of over a billion dollars in an EBITDA less than negative 100 million, EBITDA is an acronym that investors use to describe earnings before income, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Basically, what it means is it's a rough term to describe um, money that's coming in, not counting money that's going out for certain expenses that you have to take into account in order to like run the company and pay the taxes and pay the rent and all of that other stuff. And so when he says an EBITDA less than negative 100 million, what he's saying is these companies are bleeding money. They're, so they're losing they're, money. There are 218 companies on the stock listings that have a market cap of over 100 billion, meaning there's a $1 billion invested in this company. 
and all 218 of these companies are bringing in a negative 100 million in revenue. They are losing, losing a hundred million, and that's before they have to pay taxes or they have to oh, pay wow. rent because again, earnings before income or, or um uh, interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So that's income that you are taking in before you have to pay out money on taxes or interest on debt that you have or paying off equipment that you bought or writing down the fact that equipment can degrade over time and you're going to have to replace it. And so if you're having negative EBITDA, that means you are bleeding money out. None of these 218 companies are profitable is, is basically what we're getting to. I think our listeners are starting to see the problem here. How is it that these companies can have so much money invested in them, but they're making nothing? It's, it's not even just money invested in them. It's, it's how could you say that 218 companies should be worth over a billion dollars? The market is saying these companies are worth over a billion dollars. And in 29 cases, they're worth over $10 billion. Wow. And yet every single one of those companies is losing money. This is a story that I, I watched this YouTube video. I actually showed it to Hamilton mm -hmm. um, by this guy named Joseph Carlson. And it was an, a hilarious YouTube video. It was a great story. And he opened, I, I, I'll paraphrase the story. He opened up the story with saying the tagline for the video was, I'm starting a business and here's how you can invest in it. And it sounded like he was actually like about to sell you a product or service. And then he starts saying this story and he's like, all right, here's my business plan. We're going to, we're going to go to Costco. We're going to get all the carts in Costco. We're just going to load everything up into the carts. We're going to pay it. We're going to take it out onto the streets. We're going to set up a big tent across the street from Costco. And then we're going to sell everything we just bought at a 30% loss. And we're going to make so much money doing that. And then you're sitting here listening. How are you going to make money selling things at a loss? And then when he gets halfway through the story, he explains. Now, you might be asking me, Joseph, that sounds ridiculous. We're going to lose our shirts. How could you be in business selling everything at a loss? And then he says, and that's exactly what these companies are doing. And then he gets to, to a prime example, which is Carvana. And what he's explaining in this process, in this story is that there's a lot of companies. He's saying the exact same thing that Michael Burry is, is saying in this tweet. There's a lot of companies in Silicon Valley that have gotten rich off of losing money. And we're going to explain in this episode how on earth that could be possible. Because again, how do you make money through losing money? Well, you would not be able to do this in a monetary environment that was not the one that we had over the last three years, which is why... I bring up Elizabeth Warren in the show in the beginning right. because when Elizabeth Warren is complaining against raising interest rates, what she's doing, and she might not even realize it. I don't actually think she realizes it. What she's doing is advocating for a return to the very environment that allowed these companies to get away with, on one hand, losing millions of dollars every single quarter but on another hand, enriching not the shareholders, actually enriching the executives that are running the company and uh -huh. the employees working in the company. This is an aspect of the largest transfer of wealth that has taken place, certainly in my lifetime, that nobody is talking about. And the people that are paying for it are you and me. And you know what? We're paying for it even if we're not invested in the company. Really? Yeah. How is that possible? Okay. So- Here's a story. The Federal Reserve is obviously we know from this podcast 
the one that's responsible for the monetary supply. The Federal Reserve is the one that basically can create money out of thin air, right? It's, it's you know, a form of fiat currency that we've been on since 1971. And we've complained many times about this process, right? And, and rightfully so. Because, for example, let's say that there's $100 in circulation. I'm going to use a very simple term. We'll, we'll be playing with monopoly money, no pun intended, right? Let's say there's $100 in circulation. And let's say that you own $1. You would own 1% of the money in circulation, right? Now, let's say the bank, um, let's say the Federal Reserve, prints another $100 and injects that into the money supply. But you don't get that money. Instead, other people get that money. Now, the percent of money that you own out of the total amount of money in circulation has gone from 1% to half a percent. Your net wealth as a fixture of the total amount of money in circulation has been cut in half because the amount of money that has been injected into the economy has doubled. Well, we've talked about on this podcast about how in the span of like 24 months, it was something like 40% of all money that has ever been printed in the United States was printed in 24 months from 2020 to 2022 in a, in a two-year period. And the exact same thing that the Federal Reserve does with increasing the monetary supply is exactly what many of these quasi-fraudulent, not outright fraudulent, fraudulent but quasi-fraudulent companies in Silicon Valley and Wall Street have been okay, doing as that, well. That's very important. Can you explain that again? Just summarize that one more time, that what these private companies are doing with their own stock options is very similar to what the Fed has done over the past couple of years. Sure. So I've got an example for you. My favorite company that I love to rail against, Carvana. Yeah. We've actually got a chart here that I want to show. Um, Carvana, this is the amount of shares of Carvana that are in circulation over time. So again, we've talked about in this episode and in previous episodes about how Again, market cap is you take all the shares in existence and you multiply them by the share price. And that gives you what is theoretically the value of the company. That's what the stock market, that's what the the, the market itself is saying the company is worth, mm -hmm. right? So just like how when the Federal Reserve prints money, they've increased the monetary supply and thus diluted you, right? They've inflated the value of money and they've taken away your purchasing power. This is how inflation comes about. Right, inflation is not prices going up. Nick talks about this a lot. Inflation is not prices going up. Inflation is the value of your money going down, mm -hmm. and the value of your money goes down because there's more money in circulation. Right. So if I counterfeit a trillion dollars and inject it into the economy, the first time I spend it, it's worth a trillion dollars. But then when I hand it to you, it's no longer worth a trillion dollars because I've now diluted the amount of money in circulation by a trillion dollars. So if there was already a trillion dollars in circulation and then I printed a trillion, I spend it and I get the value of the trillion dollars. But then when you spend it, you only get the value of 500 billion. So we've explained how dilution can take place in monetary policy through the Federal Reserve. But the same thing can take place within an individual company with their own shares. If a company has, say, 100 shares in circulation, right, and you own one, you own 1% 1 of the company. Right. But if that company then announces tomorrow, we've decided we're going to um, print, so to speak, another 100 shares and sell them in the market, and now we're going to have 200 shares in circulation. Well, if you're not given one of those shares outright, your percentage pro rata ownership of the company has gone from 1% to half a percent. It's the exact same. Mm -hmm. It's a private sector equivalent of the Fed allowing money printer okay. to go burn. Here's something I don't understand. 
How is it that the Fed printing so like are these companies getting access to the money that the Fed is printing through taking on debt? Well, in a way. So, in fact, actually, I I I would love to get into that. Yeah. And here's here's how I would explain that. Look at this chart here. This is the amount of shares that exists for Carvana stock. Okay. Carvana is one of these 218 companies that had a market cap that was massively overinflated, like billions of dollars in market cap, but they were constantly losing money. And you actually know how they were losing money, right? They, they would go out there and they would buy a car more. They would buy a car at like a 30% premium or something like that. And then they would sell it at a loss. And you think to yourself, well, how could you run a company when you're paying more for the car than it's worth? And then you're going out there and you're selling the car at a loss. Well, Carvana figured out how to make it profitable, actually. Profitable for the executives With at Carvana. very high interest rates on loans. Even then, they would still lose money on every single car they, they would sell. But what it would show in their reports that they would have to file every quarter is their revenue was going up. It'd be the equivalent, again, of me going to Costco, buying everything at Costco, at one Costco, and then going across the street and selling it all across the street at a 30% loss. And let's say I paid a million dollars, right? But I only made 700,000, right? And then the next quarter, I go to two Costco's and I do the exact same thing all over again. Well, guess what? It's going to show that my revenue went up 100% quarter over quarter. And so when Carvana releases their quarterly reports to investors into the broader stock market and it says, oh, look, our revenue has gone up 100% quarter over quarter. People are going to be like, oh, man, I need to buy Carvana because look at how their revenue is going how up so much. this company is. But what they're leaving out is that they're losing more money than ever before. So how could the company still be in existence? The company is still in existence because it finances its existence through printing shares. So, for example, go to the beginning of this chart. Scroll your, your mouse to the beginning of this chart. In 2018, the amount of shares of Carvana stock, total number of shares that were in circulation – Every single share was under 20 million shares. There were there were just it was you know 19 19 and change million shares that sure. were in circulation for Carvana stock. Look at how many shares are in circulation today. Over 105 million shares. So from 2018 to today, the number of shares that Carvana has has gone from 20 million to over 100 million. Well, gee, doesn't that sound a lot like the monetary supply? The amount of money yeah. in circulation that the Federal Reserve has printed. Okay, what I'm not understanding is the correlation between the Fed printing all of this money and Carvana being able to do the same thing. Like, is there something, is there a correlation there that allows Carvana to yes. do this? So, what I'm getting to with this is that what happens is, is that investors pile into a stock. And the reason they're piling into the stock is because it's easy for them to get the money. Oh. So the Federal Reserve is not, say, loaning the money to Carvana. What the Federal Reserve is doing when they have a loose monetary environment is that they're printing money and they're going out into the marketplace and they're buying stuff up with that money. And through the process of the Fed going through what we would call quantitative easing, which is a fancy Fed term to describe money printer go burr, that money finds its way into the hands of either private equity or venture capitalists or investment banks, you name it. Right, it finds its way into the hands of investors, not you and for, I, but for, larger. Just investors. as an example, for a venture capitalist, it could be that they own a significant property, and then because interest rates are so low, they could take out debt on that property, then inf 
inject into the marketplace. It's an indirect way that the Federal yeah. Reserve is able to get money into the hands of investors. And it's not usually you and I, but sometimes it is, right? Sometimes Congress can pass a stimulus bill ah. funded by treasuries that the Federal Reserve bought, right? So Congress passes wow. a COVID bailout bill, right? Gives us all $1,200 checks. What do we do with the $1,200 checks? We go and we buy Carvana stock. I put it towards my student loans. But if I hadn't had student loans, it would have gone right into the stock market. You know how many articles there were? And this isn't something that I brought up in this episode, but you know how many articles there were in like 2020 and 2021 about how people are taking their stimulus checks and they're investing it in GameStop or they're investing it in Shiba Inu or Dogecoin or they're investing it in, you know, companies in the stock market. That's an that's a direct way that mm -hmm. the federal government can fund bubbles where companies benefit off of the fact that you're getting paid a $1,200 stimulus check. And a lot of these like Zoomers and millennials, they took that money and they didn't pay debts with it. They took that money and they gambled it in the stock market. So what happens is, is that investors pile into a company because the company is telling them we're growing revenues by 100% every quarter. Never mind the fact that they're losing more money than they ever have been, right? Because again, I explained how right. you could be growing revenues, but at the same time losing money, Yeah. right? And so investors pile into the company using money that indirectly or directly came from the Federal Reserve printing money and keeping interest rates very low. And you know what Carvana does when people pile into the company they and buy shares. shares? They don't split shares because when you split shares, you get the shares, right? If I have one share and they they, uh, they split shares, then I have two. Okay. What they do is they issue new stock. And who do they issue new stock to? Well, they don't issue new stock to me as the shareholder. They issue new stock to themselves as the executives at the company. That's how the share price has gone from 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 under 20 million shares outstanding to over 100 million shares. Did the individual shareholders, did the retail traders that were buying Carvana stock at $400 a share get free new shares when these shares were issued? No. The executives at the company got the shares. They printed the shares into existence. Again, four years ago, there was only 20 million shares. And now there's 100 million shares. You know who got the 100 million shares? It's the CEO who got it. It's the chief financial officer who got it. It's the executives at the company that got it. It's the employees at the company that got stock-based compensation that got it. And when they get paid those shares, they're diluting the shareholders, the, the retail traders that bought into the company because they were sold this story of revenue growth. But the value of each share does not increase. It declines. The value it can decline. Okay. And in Carvana's case, it declined 99%. In fact, if you actually want to pull that up, if you want to just oh, Google- Hold on, hold on. Oh, That's important. So it declined by 99% after the stock options had been paid out. Had the executives sold their stocks at this point? Actually, I've got a- um um, a, a link that I sent you okay. um, for this episode called Open Insider. In fact, if you just want to Google it, I can show you. It's called Open Insider. It's a great tool for anybody that's that's interested in finding how executives at a company or, or you know what they're doing with their shares that they have. And if you go to um, if if you um, if you search for Open Insider and you look for Carvana stock, um, what you'll find is that executives at the company have been selling millions and millions and millions of dollars of shares until until the stock collapsed. And then they started coming back in and buying it at rock bottom valuations. Okay, Christian, it sounds like to me, what you just said is that the executives of, of, of Carvana have been selling off their stock for the past three years and have been buying barely any. So they've been like leaving with the 
They've been leaving us with the bag. Basically, they're creating bag holders, and the bag holders are you and I. And remember when I said earlier that we're paying for it even if we're not invested in the company? Yeah, how does that work? Okay, so first off, I'll explain how you're paying for it if you're invested in the company. You're paying for it because, again, if I'm buying the shares, let uh, to use the example, if there's 100 shares and then I buy one, I own 1% of the company. Sure. Right? And then if the number of shares are doubled and I'm not given any free shares, instead the shares are being given to the executives in the company, again, being created out of nothing, my ownership percentage of the company has now gone from 1% to half a percent. I've been cut in half. And so I'm being diluted as a shareholder. So that's how I'm paying for it. I am subsidizing the, the lifestyle, the income of these executives who are then selling the shares that they created for themselves. Again, out of nothing, they created a share, gave it to themselves in the form of stock-based compensation, which by the way, does not show up as an expense in their income reports. So they can hide that without showing that that is a a negative aspect of the company that they're having to pay for. That's not listed as an expense, like say when Carvana goes out there and buys a car, that's an expense that they have to write off. But when they create a share out of nothing and give it to themselves, that's not an expense. And then they take those new shares and they sell it to people like me. Suddenly, they get the full value of the share the first time that it's spent, right? It was created out of nothing. They can sell it at $400 a share, and then I buy it at $400 a share, and then suddenly when the share price goes through the roof, not share price, share count goes through the roof, and the number of shares has gone from $20 million to over $100 million, well, guess what? Eventually, investors will catch on yeah. that it's that it's not working out, and especially when the Federal Reserve shuts off the money printers and you no longer have this constant flood of money going in to prop up the, the share price. That's how the share price collapses 99%, and then you're left with the bag. So that's how you're paying for it as a shareholder. Okay, before you tell me how I'm paying for it at, not as a shareholder, you sent me a list of companies that are doing that are operating similarly. Companies like Snowflake, DoorDash, Snapchat, Palantir, Twilio, Robinhood, and Zillow? Zillow. Zillow is is not profitable. And they have a market cap of over a billion dollars. Zillow has lost a tremendous amount of money trying to flip homes over the past couple of years, especially with the implosion of the housing market. And understand, some of these companies, I, I went through the list of 218 companies, and you just read off a few of them that I identified that met the categories that Michael Burry was talking about. These companies yeah. that on paper are worth a billion dollars, but are losing money every single quarter and haven't made a cent in profit. Some of those companies will one day become profitable, sure. right? And so it's it's healthy and fine for them to be losing money right now because they're going to be on a, on a road to profitability. For, for a long time, Amazon wasn't profitable. Sure. Right. But there's a difference between a company that is not currently profitable, but is working towards profitability and a company that is not profitable, has no plans to ever be profitable and is propping itself up and existing through the printing of shares to enrich the shareholder. Again, the executive shareholders, not the retail shareholders that I've already explained are paying for it. Yeah. But again, you're paying for these companies to okay. these zombie companies to exist, even if you're not directly invested in them. OK, well. If I'm not invested in Carvana, which I never have been, or Zillow, or DoorDash, I never thought DoorDash was going to be profitable, so why would I invest in them? But anyway, if I'm not invested in these companies, how am I still paying for this? Well, I've got a question for you. Do you pay taxes? Absolutely. 
Do you use the far more than I would like to? Do you use the Do you use the American dollar? Well, I'm not sure how I could operate in America without using the American dollar. Well, I've got terrible news for you then, because if you pay taxes or buy anything in U.S. dollars, you, my friend, are helping to subsidize DoorDash and Carvana and Snowflake and all these other zombie companies. You are helping to prop them up, and guess what? If Elizabeth Warren gets her way. And convinces the Federal Reserve to go back to 0% interest rates and free money printing, you, my friend, will continue to help okay. fund these companies. Okay. Help me understand a little bit deeper why my tax dollars are going to assist these executives in becoming even far wealthier. For the same reason that when the Federal Reserve stopped printing money and started raising interest rates, the share price for almost every single one of these companies cratered. And here's what I mean by that. The Federal Reserve is printing, did from March 2020 until basically last year, had printed trillions of dollars, right? They, they had printed something like $5 trillion in like 24 months, and they kept interest rates at zero. That money, as I said earlier in this podcast, was able to find its way into the broader marketplace, right? And investors got a hold of that money, either directly or indirectly, right? Either through increased, artificially increased real estate prices that allowed them to like maybe take out another mortgage or sell a property at an inflated value or directly in the case of stimulus checks, right? So many, many different ways that the Federal Reserve's money printing managed to flow its way into the hands of equity owners. And again, we got only $1,200 checks. You want to take a guess at how much money like Wall Street or Silicon Valley got out of that? They got billions and billions and billions out of it. But the point is, is that through various different means, the Federal Reserve printed a bunch of money. That money either directly or indirectly found its way into the hands of retail investors and larger investors too, like venture capitalists and whatnot. And then they took that money and then they bought Carvana stock with it, or they bought DoorDash, or they bought Snowflake, or Lucid Motors, or Zillow, or whatever it is, right? And so the act, as I explained earlier, of buying those shares allowed for the share price to rise, and thus the insiders in the company could print more shares into existence and offload that onto the market that was buying them, and then they were able to get rich off of the process. So how does that carousel shut down? Well, the beginning stage of that process starts with the Federal Reserve printing money and right. keeping interest rates at zero. Yeah. If interest rates were not at zero and if the Federal Reserve was not printing money, how many people would be buying Carvana at $400 a share when they're not profitable? Well, we know the answer to that because interest rates are no longer zero and yeah. the Federal Reserve is no longer printing money. And Carvana stock went from $400 a share to $4 a share. I want to make one comment and then Lydia, I know you have a question. It's just amassing wealth should come as a result of you creating a product or service that brings more value to the customer than the amount of money that they have paid you for it. That is not right. what's happening here. No, it's a giant and, grift. <laughs> and it's a giant grift. And I think people like us could look at this and say, well, these people are greedy. I don't care whether they're greedy or not. The fact of the matter is they would not be able to operate in this way if the government was not operating with this type of monetary policy. Yes, and that is the heart of what we're trying to get to. I know if you're still tuning in with us, um, congrats to you because we just went through a bunch of really yeah. wonky stuff. Well, let's get let's get to Lydia. I know she has a question here. Yeah, this actually ties in really well to what you just brought up, Hamilton. So 
the way I was taught economics, I was homeschooled, so I just read Economics in One Lesson by really? Hazlitt. And he had, yeah, it was really, it was actually a really interesting course. I found economics to be fascinating. I found Thomas Sowell to be super interesting as well. Yeah. But anytime I look at something like this, I'm like, oh, this is so complicated. It's gross. It's boring. It just feels sticky and nasty. And like, there's way too much government intervention and i think elizabeth warren is going to come at this from the perspective of being like oh this is what the free market has done look how corrupt it is but that's not the case at all this to me just like looks like extremely crony capitalism yes you guys can let me know what you think of that but from my learning about economics in high school which admittedly was a while ago it seemed very simple it was actually very interesting i found it to be really straightforward between what you do, what you contribute to the economy, and what you can get out of it. So how do we go from there to such a muddled mess? And how can normal people push back on this kind of thing? What can we do to fix this? That is a really good question. And if I had the answer to that, I would be Nick Freitas. Um, <laughs> Lydia, what I would say to you to answer that question is we need to stop buying these like Again, the process that I just explained was a very complicated mm -hmm. process, right? It took me like 30 minutes basically to get yeah. through this. But if if you were following along, I I, I would like to believe that, that hopefully I might have at least somewhat connected the dots to explain how the Federal Reserve printing money and having interest rates at zero created this bubble economy to allow these zombie companies that aren't profitable – to prop themselves yeah. up and not just prop themselves up, but thrive despite mm -hmm. the fact that they're losing money and, and be able to subsidize themselves off the back of retail investors and also taxpayers. Right. And, and by connecting those dots, you can see how the actions of the central bank have enabled certain people who were already fairly wealthy to yeah. get even richer off of us either, again, duping us in the form of us being bag-holding retail investors or in us having to pay the price in the form of higher taxes and higher inflation, Yeah. right? But that's a very complex yeah. process to explain all of that and explain that relationship. Meanwhile, somebody like Elizabeth Warren can go out and simply say, these evil, greedy corporations, this yep. is why we need more power. This is why the federal government needs more power. I, I want to hit on that because what seems most nefarious to me about this is that Elizabeth Warren would love to create a playing field that she controls the rules for where they yes. can operate whatever way they want to with no ramifications, but everyone in the private market has to abide by their rules when they have to follow none of them. Oh, yeah. Because they would their response to the situation would be, we need more regulation to keep companies from doing this so that they can continue operating in this type of monetary monetary policy. You know, there's actually, um, if you could go back to the Forbes article um, from Elizabeth Warren. Um, nope, the next one. Right there. Remember this? Mm -hmm. Uber, Uber and Lyft, Lyft have a powerful new enemy in Washington, and it's Elizabeth Warren. Uber and Lyft are on that list of 218 really? companies that are zombie companies that have a market mm -hmm. cap of over a billion dollars and aren't profitable. Yeah. So isn't it really ironic that apparently Elizabeth Warren is the enemy of Uber and Lyft, and yet she's publicly calling for a return to the very monetary policy that enabled Uber and Lyft to exist in the first place without ever having to generate a cent in profits? Mm. Okay. I, I, think we're, I think we've covered this very well. 
and I think we're about to wrap up. I want you to clarify one more thing for us because I even need a little bit of help to leave this episode totally understanding this. One more time, summarize the correlation between the Federal Reserve printing money and these executives being able to print all of these stock options. I want to make sure I leave totally having a good grasp on this. Sure. I'd love to do that. And then I'd like to end with a brief explanation, maybe between the three of us, of why, again, to go back to Lydia's original question that I only halfway answered, what the audience who's listening to this episode, you know, how they can push back against this, right? Because if they understand this relationship, then the next question that they need to ask is, okay, I now understand how this is working. How do we fight back against demagogues like Elizabeth Warren um, that are calling for more government control and regulation in order to solve this problem? Right. So the relationship works by the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates and prints a bunch of money like they did beginning in March 2020, all the way until about a year ago. The act of lowering interest rates makes it easier for people to borrow, right? And the act of printing money means that that money it doesn't just sit in the Federal Reserve's bank account, right? They go out there and they spend that on something. They'll either, banks. they'll either give it to banks, they'll either go out there and buy mortgage-backed securities, they'll either go out there and buy, buy corporate bonds in some cases, they'll go out there and they'll they'll buy treasury bonds in order to give Congress free money for them to spend on anything like stimulus checks or COVID bailout bills, right? And many of those COVID bailout bills went to corporations, right? You remember the Paycheck Protection Plan and right. stuff like that mm-hmm. and how much fraud existed within that system? So so what I'm yeah. saying is, is that the act of lowering interest rates and printing money, either directly or indirectly, funnels that money into the hands of people that then invest in these companies. Sometimes it's just retail investors like you and I. I, I can tell you right now, I spent my stimulus checks on investing in the stock market. I did not buy Carvana. Thank God I did not buy Carvana. (laughs) But point is, is that, you know, I'm one of those retail investors that took that money and threw it into the stock market. So I'm an example of one of those Mm -hmm. people, right? So that's how, how the money gets its way into the hands of investors or gets its way into the hands of companies, right? Is interest rates get lowered, money gets printed, and that money funnels its way into the markets one way or another. And it might be a whole other podcast to explain in detail how that happens. But it funnels its way into the market one way or another. When it funnels its way into the market one way or another, it sends the market through the roof. That's the bubble effect. That is the Austrian business cycle that we've talked about in previous episodes. That's the creation of the bubble. Quick question. Is this why... The stock market is this why the stock market was so, was roaring so high during Trump's presidency. Do you want do you want do you want the truth or do you want the truth? <laughs> um, the the answer, Hamilton, and this is going to be unpopular to a for for a lot of Republicans, but I mean, I have no problem saying the truth. Um, yeah, actually, yes. To to be completely right. honest, um. Trump also presided over the everything bubble. And uh, there's tweets there that exist of Trump calling for interest rates to be lowered and calling for even money to be printed. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. yes, Trump bears a significant amount of responsibility for this, to be completely honest. Wow. Um, it's not just him, though. It would be intellectually sure. dishonest to say it's just him. This has been going on since 2008. So Obama right. bears some responsibility. Even George Bush bears responsibility. Biden bears a tremendous amount of responsibility as well. He's made it even worse. But yes, Trump does absolutely bear yeah. 
uh, a, a significant amount of responsibility for well, this. Let's go, I know you're heading this direction, but let's go ahead and put a bow on this. How does this affect my investments in my 401k? You know, I take a portion out of my paycheck every month. I put it directly into my 401k. What's the correlation here? Because you're investing in a bubble. And as we've seen over the past year, that bubble has burst in many respects, sure. right? It, so many of these companies collapse. And if you had been buying Carvana at $400 a share, you got completely wiped out. And that investment was a what, what is what's the stock price now? Uh, well, it fell as low as four dollars, and then it rebounded to like so seven four hundred dollars to four dollars. It, at its peak, it fell ninety nine percent. Wild. Wow. And they're not alone. Many of these companies in that two hundred eight list fell off a cliff over the past year because, again, if I explain that the whole process begins with the Federal Reserve printing money and lowering interest rates, yeah. what happens when the Fed stops printing money and raises interest rates? It, the it, bubble collapses, and that's yeah. exactly what we've seen. But guess what? It's only the people that are paying for that are the people that bought Carvana at $400 a share, not the guys that sold Carvana at $400 yeah. a share to you. The people that sold it are the executives who printed the shares to sell to you. That's wow. the crazy part. So I think that we've explained that relationship now. I want to end the episode, and hopefully not just with me speaking, yeah. about how do we push back against people like Elizabeth Warren or other politicians on the left that then they look at companies in Wall Street, you know, right? right? They, they, they look at executives and how much money they've gotten over the past couple of years, and they say, this, all this greed, capitalism is broken. We need more government power and authority. I will leave, and I'd love to get some input from you yeah. guys. I would leave this discussion with Elizabeth Warren is a political arsonist pretending to be a fireman. She is publicly advocating for a return to the very monetary policy that enabled these corporations to get away with what they've been getting away with for three years. And when she goes out there and complains about Silicon Valley and Wall Street she is disingenuous in her complaints. She's being a demagogue. She isn't wow. actually complaining because if she was actually complaining about how these companies are taking advantage of retail traders, like that article about uh, about um, uh, GameStop, or if she's complaining about the actions of like Uber and Lyft, then maybe you should stop advocating for a return to the very monetary policies that enabled these companies it's to dishonest. apparently exploit people in the first place. So that's what I would leave with. But- I mean, in terms of like general messaging and how we should be going about as conservatives or as libertarians or just as liberty loving people in general that don't want to see more government control. I mean, what's your take on it? I, I, I know I, that this is a very complex process. Lydia, I, I, go ahead. I want to get your thoughts on this. So I think honestly that that a podcast like this is actually a really good place to start because I, I think that we're honestly telling people something that they don't know before. They, they hadn't been told before. We hope. Um, mm -hmm. No, we actually do hope everybody knew about this, but now we know that everybody that's listening now knows about right. it. Right. I certainly didn't know about it. I'm sure the rest of the audience is largely much more informed than I am since I know that they're largely guys and younger, and I know that a lot of younger guys are super interested in this. But what I was going to say was that knowledge is power, and I think that reminding people of this, even if they did already know this, like you said, Hamilton, is going to be good for everybody, and it will help them determine how they vote for these people. Now, I remember with Elizabeth Warren, she said some things about big tech that I was like, 
oh, I think she might be right. But I felt very uncomfortable saying that, not just because she's on the other side of the aisle from me, but because I sensed that there was some deeper dishonesty behind what she was saying. I don't trust that she's a good faith actor. And after this conversation, I'm 100% convinced of it. And even when I do agree with her on something, it's very important to understand the layers beneath what she's saying and why exactly she's pushing what she is pushing. So I honestly think that education is a good place to start. And I think that voting for really strong, smart, liberty-minded people who will act in good faith is the next best step we can take. Beyond that, we just need to be careful with where we invest our money and smart about what we do with it. Yeah, the the, the we don't re- usually give investment advice here, but yeah. um, the, 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 the number one <laughs> lesson that, that people that actually do give investment advice, people like Warren Buffett and stuff like that is, is if you're going to invest in an individual company, make sure you're investing in a company that actually is making money rather yeah. than losing right. money. That's usually, <laughs> again, when times are great and the bubble's going on, you probably will make a lot more on Carvana. But in the long run, if, if, if you just want to buy and hold a company for the long run, you're probably way better off investing in a company that's actually profitable rather than one that is losing money but funding itself by diluting you as the shareholder. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to close on a point that I made a few minutes ago um, that Elizabeth Warren and people and politicians like herself would like to create a playing field that were that they create the rules for where no one else outside of that playing field gets to decide how they want to operate and then they just want to control the whole thing and yep i would i would call that tyranny uh, being a tyrant i i would i mean if you want to be like very specific and we've talked about this before on this show elizabeth warren is basically advocating for economic fascism. I'm not saying she's like a, a you know, jack-booted, brown shirt, you know, yeah. like Mussolini acolyte. But when, and again, we've talked about this on this podcast before, when you look at the economic principles of fascism, there's a lot of overlap between what people like her, and you know what? There's also a lot of Republicans too, increasingly in Washington, D.C., that are echoing very similar things to her. Yeah. And Republicans are a problem here as well. Oh, they're definitely a problem. And we're not afraid to call them out on this podcast. Like there's... The biggest thing to get away from this conversation is that just because a politician, you, you need to, every time a politician goes out there and says, I have the solution, and the solution is more government power, more government control, sometimes, oftentimes, more government regulations and taxes. Yeah. The question you need to be asking yourself every single time is, why are they proposing that solution? Yeah. Well, Nick, Nick did say on Tuesday's podcast that we need to stop using the word solutions and start using the term trade-offs because the solutions make it sound like there is a one-stop shop or a, a, a single solution which would solve the problem, which is unlikely. Well, anyway, I want to thank you all for joining us on this episode. We apologize that Nick and Tina could not be present for today's discussion. I hope that Christian and Lydia and I did a good job of bringing you value, new information that you can discuss with your friends and family. If you would like to discuss this topic further with us, head down to the description of this podcast. Join our community chat on Volley. We would love to meet you there. It's a really cool app where we can send videos back and forth with everyone. We've got about 125 folks who have joined, um, and it's really nice to see everyone. So anyway, go to that link in the description sign up you'll have to download the app but i promise it's worth it and we will see you next tuesday i believe nick and tina will be back with us um and yeah we thank you for joining us
Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.